Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I am so uh, thankful for so many things this week. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, One of the things I have been thanking God for is our church community here at Jacobswell Church. What a blessing it is to to know all you, to uh, love you, to have you love me. It's, it's been such a blessing uh, to have a greater Christian community in Green Bay. There are several pastors in Green Bay that I get to talk to, uh, pray with, pray for. They pray for me. Uh, such a tremendous blessing. I'm so thankful that we get to gather together on Sunday mornings unharassed to worship the Lord. These are such tremendous blessings from God. And because we live in this world all the time, we may tend to think that this is the way that it is for Christians around the world. But in fact, it is not. Uh, I would say maybe even for the majority of Christians or the majority of the world, uh, Christianity is not that easy. I want to briefly read to you three excerpts from three articles about three countries and what it's like to be a Christian there. The first one is from China, and it's from April of this year uh, from Radio Free Asia. Uh, They report that authorities in China are detaining Christians to make them renounce their faith. According to the report, a member uh, of one of the house churches uh, said that he was held in a facility run by the government, and he was held in a room without windows for 10 months, not 10 days, but 10 months, and during which time he was beaten, verbally abused, and mentally tortured by the staff. The article continues and says that Christians are subject to various methods of discrimination and persecution in China. Christians often complain of the closure of churches, bans on the sale of Bibles, the removal of crosses, and the arrests of priests and worshipers. Reports also suggest that there are plans to contextualize the Bible and for Christian preaching to be adapted to include the core values of socialism. Uh, on, on the most uh, watched list, China is actually the 17th most persecuted uh, country, c- country persecuting Christians. And so there are 16 countries worse than this, all right? Uh, move over to Japan. There is an interview with a pastor named Katsuki Hirano, and he's asked to give an overview of what Christianity is like in Japan. And he says, today it is less than 1% of the population. He says 0.7 or 0.6% of the population would claim to be Christian. Membership in the churches are getting older and the churches are shrinking. He oversees some pastors from Japan, and he says all of them have fewer than 30 members in their congregation. And some only have 10. When asked if there is an upside to a small church, 
He said, Christians in Japan are a minority. We don't think that we have to get a better life. We decided to be a minority. The smallness of the church doesn't matter for us. Our responsibility is to preach the word of God faithfully. This pastor studied in America, and so they asked him, they said, do you think Japan has anything to teach the Christian church in America? And he said this, I love this. He says, I think the lesson for American churches and pastors is this, quote, don't be afraid to become a minority. Final article uh, comes much closer to home. So China, Japan, uh, this one is just a few hundred miles away in Canada. It was written less than a month ago on the Gospel Coalition website by a pastor named James Seward. And he said, the, title, the article is entitled, A Word to American Christians from a Pastor in Canada. And he starts the article by sharing that he is very much American, born in Arizona, raised in the Midwest, pastored a church in Chicago. Uh, he, has kids, uh, he had kids while he was in America. He adopted kids from America. He is very American. But eight years ago, he moved to Canada to pastor. And he says this, he says, it is increasingly difficult for Canadian physicians and lawyers to even practice if they hold traditional Judeo-Christian values. Christian universities can't offer certain degrees because of their beliefs. The Canadian evangelical community is fledgling even while robust. I think their average attendance is around 30 people in Canadian churches. He says, we are undersourced and underfunded. We have no big conferences, no robust, but distinctly Canadian parachurch movements and little in terms of magnetic destination seminaries. Even our denominations are small. He says, our geographical spread intensifies the lack of cohesion. A population the size of California is scattered across a landmass larger than the entire United States. And the number of evangelicals in Canada is barely more than the number of evangelicals in Tennessee. You know, I think it is fair to say that being a Christian in most of the world is not like being a Christian in America. In most of the world, the church is a small minority. I mean, when you think of Europe, which is post-Christian, we think of Russia, which is against Christians, India, the Middle East. The church in most countries, in most parts of the world, are, is very, very small. In some parts of the world, like China, Christians are persecuted. In other parts of the world, like Japan, they're just simply overlooked because they're such a small percentage of the population. And so let me ask you, if you were writing a letter to one of your brothers or sisters in Christ who is in one of these countries where they are such a small minority, where they are suffering, where they are struggling to maintain the faith, what would you write to them? What would you say to them to encourage them? Well, today we have the privilege of reading a letter from Jesus to such a church, to the church of Philadelphia. If you would please open up to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we will be looking at verses 7 through 13 today. It is page 1029 in the Red Bible. Again, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to go grab one from the back. It is page 1029 in the Red Bible. If you are just joining us or you're here visiting on a vacation for Thanksgiving, we are in the middle of a series in which Jesus is writing seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And we are now on the sixth church. 
And Jesus is writing uh, to this church, which is particularly small and seemingly irrelevant within the city that it exists. And so he writes this to them to encourage them. And so let's look together at Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful, so thankful, most of all for you. Thankful for Jesus. Thankful that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have written to us in your word, God. And so, Lord, may we receive this and apply this to our hearts and to our souls and to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's funny, I've actually rewritten this sermon three times uh, because it's a little bit of a tricky passage, but also because it's a little tricky to apply to our own lives uh, because the Church of Philadelphia was in a much different setting than, than we are in. And as we learned early on in this series, uh, this letter is written to the Church of Philadelphia. It's not written to us, it's written to the Church of Philadelphia, but it is written for us today. And so as we dive into this passage, I think the question becomes for us is how do we apply this passage? How does this passage apply to us? And there are four ways I think this passage is pertinent to us. The first is this. It is a great reminder to us that there are many Christians throughout the world who are uh, extreme minorities, who are suffering and who are persecuted. And so the things that we hear in Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia, we can encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ with around the world. The second way that this letter to the Philadelphians are, is helpful to us is that even though right now there are still a lot of Christians in America, I think around 25% of Americans would say that the Bible is the literal word of God, uh, the trend is going in a direction where we are, we are becoming more and more a minority. At one time, uh, we were a, a, the Christians were a majority in this country, but now we have become what's been said a prophetic minority. And so our beliefs and our practices are becoming less and less popular in this community. And so this letter helps instruct us 
how to grow small faithfully for Jesus. The third reason, the third way I think this letter is helpful for us is that if you are a Christian, uh, I hope and pray that you are in communities and gatherings and friendships where you are the minority, uh, where you are the only Christian there or one of few Christians there, whether that be in your neighborhood or uh, in your school or on your sports team or whatever it might be, that you are, that you are one of a few, if no other Christians in that community. And so this instructs us how to be faithful as a minority in those settings. And finally, if you are here today, and you are not a Christian. Uh, maybe you're here because you're visiting for Thanksgiving. We're so thankful that you are here. Uh, this letter helps remind us, will, will help show you why would someone want to be a Christian uh, if it tends to bring more ridicule and shame to those uh, who believe and follow Christ. And so, so we are going to go through this letter to the Philadelphians and answering those questions as we go along. And if you remember uh, what we've said as we've looked through these seven churches and these seven letters to seven churches, each of these is kind of like a spiritual check-in uh, by Jesus, who is the great physician of our souls. And as he checks in on these churches, uh, he praises them for what they are doing well. Uh, he reveals the problems that they are having in the church. He provides a solution for them or prescription for them on how they can right the wrong. But then he also offers these promises for those who seek to faithfully follow him in the midst of a fallen and broken world. And so we're going to follow that same pattern today. So first, we want to look at praises. Jesus prays for the little church in Philly. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 8. But before we turn and read that, I want to remind you that in each of these letters to the seven churches, Jesus presents himself to them, not simply by saying, this is from Jesus, but he, he, he comes to them and shares certain titles and attributes that he has, titles and attributes that will be most helpful to what they are wrestling with in their current context. And we see the same is true here in this passage. And so see how Jesus identifies himself here in verse seven. He says, and to the angel that is the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This title, the Holy One, is a title commonly used throughout the Old Testament as a title for God himself. A title that displays the glory and the majesty of God. A great example of this is in Isaiah chapter 40, when he says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on a high and see who created these. That is the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. Who created all of these things? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of the, his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then you probably have heard this. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so here, as Jesus is calling himself the Holy One, he is declaring that he is eternal God, creator of heaven and earth. And not only that, he says that he is the true one. Uh, much like today in, in Philadelphia, there was a, a circulation, a, a sea of religious and philosophical opinions 
Furthermore, as we will find out, is that the Jews in that community have condemned the beliefs of the Christians. And so in this, in this world where there are so many beliefs, so many philosophies, Jesus comes to them and he says, listen, I am the true one. I'm the one who speaks truth. I'm the one who is true. And this is so important because what he is about to say next transforms our lives, but only if it's true. And so Jesus continues and he makes this claim. He says that he has the key of David, that he opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one opens. This key of David may be thought of like a key to the city, right? Or a key to the gate if it is a a city with a wall. Or, Or maybe even the key to the treasury. But this key is not to an earthly Jerusalem. It is to a heavenly Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I have the keys. I have the keys to unlock the kingdom of God. I have the keys to unlock heaven. I have the keys to unlock all the riches of heaven that are for you in Christ. We see something similar in Revelation chapter 1. You can look there with me in verse 17 and 18. Jesus says this. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so the same one who has the keys to unlock death is the same one who has the keys to unlock heaven. You know, the one with the most keys has all the power. That's why you want to be Jermaine's friend, because Jermaine has keys to the inner doors, the outer doors, the garage doors. He has the keys to everything. Jesus has the keys to heaven, and he promises to this little fledgling church who has been shut out of the earthly uh, synagogue that, that he will open up to them the temple of God in heaven for all eternity. This is such a beautiful word of encouragement to this fledgling church. Jesus moves on to give this little church of Philly a word of praise. In verse eight, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So in this verse, I think this word open door is not so much talking about the open door of heaven, but the open door of evangelism. Uh, this, this term open door is used in other places. The apostle Paul talks about having an open door of ministry to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel in Ephesus. He asked the church in Colossae to pray that he would have an open door to declare the mysteries of Christ. And so in this particular passage, I think what, what Jesus is saying to this church in Philly, uh, although you may not have many converts, although you may be small in size, although you may not have, you know, a, a great reputation among the community, continue to be faithful to proclaim the good news of the gospel because you have an open door to evangelism. Verse eight continues. And he says, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philly had little power. This does not mean that they were unable to lift heavy objects. Uh, It didn't mean that they had a less powerful form of the Holy Spirit. What it means is that they had little power and influence in the community that they were in. They were just a teeny tiny church, maybe smaller than your Thanksgiving gathering. This is how small this church was. And yet Jesus praises this small church. He says, I 
know your works. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. He gives two praises to this little church in Philly. The first is that you have kept my word. Unlike the other churches in the book of Revelation, the church of Philly does not receive a rebuke. Meaning unlike the other churches, little little church in Philly did not tolerate unrepentant sin in the church. They did not capitulate to the culture around them. They did not engage in unrepentant sexual immorality. All of which is probably a reason why the little church in Philly was so small is because the standards of God were so offensive to this world. For sure, this little church in Philly was not perfect. But it was a good church, a faithful church a church obedient to God's word. And for that reason, Jesus praises this church. You know, it's interesting, just in the verses prior to this, it was several weeks ago now, but Jesus writes to the church in Sardis. And he says to them, he says, you have a reputation of being alive, meaning they were probably a growing church, a a, a lively church, a thriving church within the community. But to that church, he has no praises for them. Because they have capitulated into the ways of the world, into the ways of the city. And yet here is this small church, nothing snazzy, but a faithful church, obedient to God's word, and Jesus praises them. There's a popular podcast out right now that I think almost every pastor I know is listening to. Uh, And the name of the podcast is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it details the story of a small church in Seattle that had a very uh, a gifted and eloquent speaker, uh, a, a very charismatic leader. Uh, he was a great pastor to those in his congregation. Uh, but what, as you listen to the podcast, what you learn is that behind closed doors to the leadership of the church, whether that be staff or elders or just leaders in the church, uh, he was a terror. He was, a, he was a bully to a lot of these people. I mean, one, one illustration that they gave that, that I think really kind of epitomizes it is that they had a baptism Sunday. After baptism Sunday was done, they got to their staff meeting. He laid into the staff who forgot to bring the towels to the baptism in front of everyone. Uh, anyone who would oppose him would get fired or dismissed or brought up on charges of insubordination because his way was the right way and everyone else had to get out of the way. And so, so what you find as you listen through this podcast is that, is that all of these people uh, seem to try to sound an alarm, right? Saying, hey, this is not okay. This is not good. And, and as they sound the alarm, nobody listens. And the reason why nobody listens is because the church is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And since the church is getting bigger, it must mean that they're doing things the right way. But of course, they, were, they didn't. And it imploded. Jesus removed their lampstand. To my knowledge, Jesus never ever praises a church in the New Testament for being big or for being small. Some churches are big, some are small, but Jesus never praises a church on being big or small. Jesus praises them for being faithful, obedient to his word, keeping his word. And so Jesus first prays for the church of Philly was that they were keeping his word. The second praise for the church was that they did not deny his name. I have a a friend or an acquaintance, and uh, he's from the Middle East. 
and, uh, and I've just always known him as, as Joe. Uh, everyone called him Joe. Well, one day I found out uh, that's not his given name. Evidently, that's not a popular name in the Middle East, Joe. Uh, but his actual name is Saddam, uh, like Saddam Hussein. And so wisely, he's like, I'm going to give up this name so I don't get hassled for my name being Saddam, right? I think it's probably a wise move on his part. But what you see here is, is in the church of Philadelphia, to wear the name Christ, to wear the name Christian, is to live a life of, of hassle, of rejection, of ridicule. And for the Christians, it would have been so tempting to simply dismiss the name of Christ. And yet they clung and they claimed the name of Christ for themselves, unashamedly before the community. I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father and who, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. These Christians in Philadelphia did not deny the name of Christ, but wore the name of Christ with love and with joy. If you're here today and you claim to be a Christian, I'm curious if there are certain groups, certain friend groups or business groups or neighborhood groups where you shy away from the fact that you belong to Christ, that you are a Christian. If you can think of those, take heart. Jesus is the Holy One, the truth, the keeper of the key of heaven. And he praises this little church of Philly and all Christians who seek to keep his word, but also who do not deny his name. And so that is Jesus' praise for the church of Philly. We'll try to speed up here. The second is problems for the little church of Philly. Uh, notice I don't have problems with the little church of Philly. This is problems for the little church of Philly. Uh, Jesus actually has no rebuke for the little church of Philly. Uh, again, they are not a perfect church. They're full of sin strugglers, just like our church is. But just because it isn't a perfect church does not mean it is not a good church. And this is a good church. So Jesus has no rebuke for the church of Philly, but that does not mean there are not problems for the church of Philly. Verse 9, he says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Let me just unpack that a little bit. We saw a similar description of the synagogue uh, in, let me see here, I believe it's in, in Smyrna, yeah, in Revelation 2, 9. Uh, Jesus describes that synagogue, which was a synagogue of God, now as a synagogue of Satan. And the reason why Jesus describes it that way is because, uh, just a refresher, if you remember in that time, uh, Caesar demanded that everybody worship him as one of their many gods, but he provided an exemption for the Jews. The Jews did not have to worship Caesar as God. They had to do something else, but not worship him as God. And, and Christians were considered a sect of Judaism. And so they had that same protection that they didn't have to worship Caesar as Lord. And so there was this protection for them, except the Jews started to ostracize the Christians and dismiss the Christians and, and kick out the Christians. And so the Christians started to come under uh, this, this, uh, the, this, this command that they had to worship Caesar as Lord. Now, the problem with that is they believe that only Jesus is Lord. And so persecution started to intensify. On top of this, Jews started to slander the Christians, make things up to intensify that persecution. And so Jesus calls these synagogues, 
synagogues of Satan because they were doing the work of Satan. They were making life difficult for the people of God, bringing harassment and pain and trials to the people of God. And so he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Furthermore, he says that they say that they are Jews, but are not, that they're lying. They're lying not only uh, to the world around them, they're lying to God and they are lying to themselves. They are not true Jews because true Jews would have seen the scriptures of the Old Testament and would have understood the 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus and would have turned and worshiped Christ as their savior. We see something similar to this in Romans chapter two, which says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, a true Jew would have identified the Savior that came, would have trusted in Christ for their salvation. And so here in verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn, they will learn, they will learn that I have loved you. <clears throat> this is a very interesting promise from Jesus, uh, because back in Isaiah chapter 45, he makes a promise to the Jews. And he says to the Jews, to Israel, he says, listen, all of the kings and all the powerful people from all around the world, all these Gentiles, which are non-Jews, one day will, will, will say, will testify that your Lord, the Lord is God and that you are his people. He says this promise to the Jews, but now he is flipping this promise. Instead of promising it to the Jews that the Gentiles would come and acknowledge that they are the beloved of the Lord, now he's promising this to a Gentile church, which probably also has Jews in it as well. But he is promising it to his new people, his continued people, the church. And he's saying, listen, there is a day coming, you Gentile Christians, in which the Jews will bow down and they will know that I have loved you. I don't know uh, if you have... Uh, I'm guessing you have uh, seen the movie Cinderella. Um, but in the movie Cinderella, uh, there is this girl named Cinderella. And, uh, and, she, and her father dies. And she is left with her evil stepmother and stepsisters uh, who, who hate her, uh, who, 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 who are jealous of her and treat her awful. They treat her like a slave. Well, one day, uh, the king throws this great ball Uh, trying to find a wife for his son, the prince. And the letter goes throughout the kingdom and the letter comes to Cinderella's house and she is so excited to go to the ball. Maybe she could fall in love with this prince, but her evil stepmother basically makes it impossible for her to go. Well, a little bit of magic uh, happens and she makes it to the ball in a beautiful dress with beautiful shoes and a beautiful carriage. And she gets there and the prince locks eyes with her and no other woman in the room matters. And he spends the entire night with her, dancing with her, and he falls in love with her. But then she has to run away because, as you know how the story goes, it's about to turn midnight and her her dress will turn into rags and her carriage will turn into a pumpkin. And so she runs off and she leaves the glass slipper behind. 
Well, the, uh, the Duke uh, is assigned to go and take this slipper around and try it on all of the maidens of the kingdom to see who wore this glass slipper that he may bring her back to the prince, that the prince might marry this woman. Well, he comes to Cinderella's house, and I think she gets locked up in the closet. I can't quite remember how it goes. But, but there are the evil stepsisters, and their feet are too fat to fit in it, although they try very hard to do it. And as this Duke is getting ready to leave with the glass slipper, Cinderella breaks out of the closet and she's like, can I try it on? And so, so he starts to walk back in and as he's walking towards Cinderella, the evil stepmother trips him and the glass slipper breaks and everyone is destroyed and the Grand Duke is just fretting over this. And then Cinderella pulls out a glass slipper and she says, maybe this will do. And she tries it on and they rejoice and the Duke, Duke whisks her back to the castle where she is married to the prince. And then the last scene of that movie is her and the prince are coming out of the castle. They are getting into the carriage and they're in a parade of people who are all acknowledging that she is the beloved of the prince. See, here's the great promise for the church in Philly and for all Christians today. That while the world may dismiss your love for Jesus or marginalize your love for Jesus or even shame you for your love of Jesus, there is a day coming in which all will know that Jesus is king and that you are his beloved bride for he has set his love upon you. Jesus does not minimize the problems for the church in Philly, but he points them forward to the eternal kingdom that is to come in which they will live forever as the beloved bride of Christ. He continues in verse 10 to show us he's not just aware of the problems Philly is going through, but also the problems Philly will go through. Verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This term patient endurance means to hold up under pressure. And he's saying, Because you have been faithful in the midst of suffering, I will keep you from the hour that is to come. Now, there's a lot of controversy and debate about what this means. This could mean keep you from, as in remove you, or it means it could mean keep you through the hour of trouble. Uh, there's debate on whether the hour is something that these Christians experience in Philadelphia or if it is an hour that is yet to come when Jesus returns. But whatever you think about this, whether you believe that Jesus keeps you through the trial or from the trial, if the hour already happened for the church in Philadelphia or if it is to come, what we can agree upon is the promise that Jesus is giving here is to protect his people that he will keep them either from the trial or through the trial. And, and we experience that on a daily basis as Christians, that we go through trials in this life. Sometimes Jesus keeps us from the trial. He, he removes us to, to let the trial pass by us, but sometimes he puts us in the trial and keeps us through the trial to himself. And so this is the promise Jesus has for them, that he will keep them even in the midst of suffering. The prescription for the little church in Philly. This is the third point, and this will be quick. Verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You know, this little church is probably feeling discouraged 
they're feeling uh, like they can't hold on much longer, that they can't stay true to the faith, that there's so much pressure to accommodate to the world around us. And Jesus says, hold on. I think of those videos that I've seen. I think I've seen several of them where floodwaters rise and there's a person trapped in a tree holding on to the tree until the rescuer comes to save them. In the same way, Jesus is saying, hold on. Hold on to your profession of faith. Hold on to the hope of heaven. Hope on to me because I am coming. I will be there soon. So hold on. That is his command for them. Finally, the promises for the little church in Philly. This letter is full of promises to this little church to encourage them. Jesus promises them again an open door of heaven. Jesus promises them the world will know that he loves them. Jesus promises them that he will keep them from or through the hour of trial. And Jesus' promises continue here in verse 12. He says, the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Not only were the Christians in Philadelphia shut out of the synagogue in Philly, but there was also, uh, there was also a reputation in Philly of there being a lot of earthquakes. Uh, it was on a fault line. You can think of it like maybe California. Uh, but in 17 AD, there was this great earthquake uh, just destroyed the city. And then for many years after, almost daily, they would have these, these tremors. Uh, and it would, it would worry the people so much that they would actually uh, go live in tents outside of the city so that their houses wouldn't collapse on them. And so here you, you have this city uh, that was very fragile, that was always falling apart. And Jesus says to this city is that I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. If you go back and look at the ruins of almost any city, you will see the things that are still standing are typically the pillars. This is actually from uh, the city of, F of uh, Philadelphia, these huge pillars uh, that are remaining. Now, to be fair, I don't think these pillars existed uh, in the day when John wrote it, but it makes the point that pillars are the things that continue to endure for a very long time, even when the city crumbles. And so the promise that Jesus is giving in this passage to this little church in Philadelphia is that although you may be shut out of the synagogue, although the world around you may be falling apart physically and spiritually, I am giving you this promise that you shall be forever in the temple of God, enjoying your God as a pillar in the temple of God. And that's why he continues and says, never shall he go out of it. And he says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. <clears throat> I never thought I would say this, but Jesus promises tattoos. Jesus promises you three tattoos. One of the tattoos is the, the name of the city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, you can think of it as your driver's license. On your driver's license, it says what country you're from, what county you're from, what city you're from. It says this is where you belong. In the same way, Jesus is going to tattoo you so that we know this is the city where we belong. We belong in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. But then there are two more tattoos, the name of God and the new name of Jesus in heaven. And these tattoos communicate ownership. 
Uh, I don't know if you know this, but my family has a, a dog, uh, a wonderful, great, awesome dog. If you've met her, you know she's a fantastic dog. Her name is Charlie. And we love this dog, Charlie. Matter of fact, Friday night we got back from a trip at 1.30 in the morning and the kids stayed awake for a half an hour just to, to play with Charlie and to cuddle with Charlie and to have fun with Charlie. We love this dog, Charlie. And we have never tattooed this dog, Charlie, uh, but we have given Charlie dog tags. And on these dog tags are not only her name, but also our name, as well as our contact information. And the reason why we have this dog tag on Charlie is because if she ever gets away, it is a, it is a sign to those who find her that she is not astray, that she is not an unwanted dog, that she is beloved and that she belongs to us. In the same way, God promises to tattoo his name and Jesus tattoo his new name upon you because we belong to Jesus. We are his beloved. And then this letter ends with a call out to us in verse 13. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so the same promises that are true for the faithful in, in, in Philadelphia are true for us today. Let me end with this. Um, I'm guessing most of you are familiar with the name Philadelphia, uh, not because it was a city in ancient Turkey, but because it's a city in America today. Philadelphia is known for uh, what? Cream cheese, right? Cheese steaks, uh, the Eagles. uh, They're known for a lot of things. And their tagline is what? That they are the city of what? Brotherly love, you've heard it, right? Philadelphia, brotherly love. What's interesting is this city name in Philadelphia in Revelation 3 does not necessarily mean brotherly love, at least not the way we think. We think about brotherly love like, oh, all these strangers just love one another, which is so funny because Philadelphia is one of the cruelest cities. But, but like, hey, you know, they all love each other. But this, this name Philadelphia actually comes from a different story. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was established around 150 B.C., and the city was named after Attalus II Philadelphus. Uh, Philadelphus was his nickname, and it meant lover of brother. And he earned this nickname Philadelphus because one time his brother, who's called Eumenes, uh, was, was, uh, was traveling to Rome and to back, and there were rumors that he had been assassinated. And so Attalus accepted the crown of his brother. When his brother returned, much to his surprise, the Roman authorities were encouraging Attalus to overthrow his brother, Eumenes. But because he loved his brother so much, he joyfully surrendered his crown to make his brother king again. This devotion, this love was so overwhelming to the watching world that they gave him this nickname, Philadelphus from which the name, the city was named Philadelphia, lover of brother. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you wonder why would someone follow Jesus? Why would someone be a Christian if it means that there's potentially more suffering, more pain, more hardship for doing so? Well, the reason why we want to be Christians, the reason why we want to follow Jesus and love Jesus is because we have a greater brother. We have a great big brother who gave up his crown in heaven, who gave up the throne of heaven to come into this world, 
to, to, to be persecuted, to be slandered, to be hated, even to be murdered. And he did this to take on our sin upon himself, to, to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose on the third day to not only give us newness of life, but to give us the hope of heaven where there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, but only glory with him for all eternity. And so the simple reason why we would follow Jesus, even if it causes more suffering, is because Jesus is greater than any earthly comfort. Jesus is greater than every earthly comfort put together. And Jesus will be our eternal comfort in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we pray for the little churches throughout the world, the ones who are struggling, the ones who are persecuted, the ones who are hated and marginalized, God. Lord, we pray this Sunday that they would be encouraged by the truths that we've studied today, Lord, that they are your beloved, that you have for them an eternal destiny that far outweighs any suffering in this world. Lord, as we continue to live out our faith in this world, even if, if our world, our country becomes more hostile to our faith, God, pray that we would be faithful to you, knowing that this world is but a vapor and eternity, eternity is filled with glory. May we be faithful to you. Strengthen us, we pray. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that you don't always bring us out of suffering but sometimes you bring us through suffering as you brought your son through suffering for the purpose of redemption. And so God, even as we take of these elements, let it be a reminder for us that you promise us that in this world, we will have troubles. But the good news is that you have overcome the world. Remind our hearts of this as we feast on your supper. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.